You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Al Haig ran for president in 1988, but dropped out right after the Iowa caucus. And he said he would tell all of his supporters to vote for Bob Dole. But there was a problem. Al Haig received such a small percentage of the vote that statistically it could be considered 0% of the Iowa caucus. Leading Saturday Night Live comedian Dennis Miller to quip, when Bob Dole heard, he said, gee, thanks, Al. Al Haig died recently, and I think there's a guy who will be remembered for two moments. One quiet, the other one very much not. We said in the last podcast we'd talk about Al Haig and was he right or not, and then I forgot and left him out of the editing process. We'll make up for it and talk a little bit about Haig and Grover Cleveland as well. In 1981, While speaking at a labor meeting in the Washington Hilton, President Reagan was shot. George Bush was driving somewhere in Texas. This was before cell phones. He cannot immediately be located. The president was put under general anesthesia. By the way, Reagan was a strong guy uh, for this, and I don't mean this to make an icon out of him or anything like that, but the wound was serious. It was an inch from his heart, and for somebody his age to recover from that, this guy was built. Reagan's key aides, Deaver, Baker, Meese, were at the hospital with him. In the Situation Room was Secretary Al Haig and some of the lead generals. White House spokesman Larry Speaks takes the podium, and reporters start asking questions. For instance, who's in charge? When finally President Bush was located and was on a plane heading towards Washington, reporters started asking, well, what happens when Vice President Bush arrives here? Does he become acting president? Larry Speaks answered, I cannot answer the question at this time. Al Haig, sitting in the Situation Room with a TV set, said, get him off, and rushed to the podium. As Secretary of State, Al Haig was the highest-ranking executive branch officer in the White House. It's 1981. The president had talked tough with the Soviet Union and was now shot. But by who? Well, a crazy man, of course, but who put the crazy man up to it? That was unknown at this time. Russia had nuclear weapons pointed at our cities. We had nuclear weapons pointed at theirs. Executive control in those times, but still today, is no joke. Here's where the story gets a little convoluted because Al Haig had a number of rivals in the Reagan White House, and the aides were not happy that he made any kind of briefing at all. But it was in response to a reporter's question. When a reporter asked, who is making the decisions? Al Haig said, well, constitutionally, gentlemen, you have the president, the vice president, and then the secretary of state. And should the president decide he wants to transfer the helm, he will do so. Then he went on to say, I am in control here. 
This turned out to be a giant media circus. Constitutionally, Al Haig got the line of succession wrong. It goes the president, the vice president, the Speaker of the House, who in 1981 would have been Tip O'Neill, the Senate President Pro Tempore, president for the time being. The vice president, of course, is the president of the Senate, but when the vice president's not there to preside over the Senate, usually it's the oldest member of the governing party. At that time, Republicans controlled the Senate. This is between the 1981 and 1986 period. It was Strom Thurmond, the president pro tempore of the Senate. Then the Secretary of State would become president. But was Al Haig wrong in his statement? The results didn't work out. Obviously, his briefing was not a success. But the decision was valid in a sense. He, as he asserted in a 2001 interview, was not talking about the line of succession. He wasn't talking about transition, who was going to become president. He was talking about who was running the White House. That was the reporter's questions. Who was making these day-to-day decisions? The speaker had not been sworn in. He was not briefed on the events in the executive branch. Al Haig was the highest constitutional officer in the executive branch who was in any position to make decisions or have communication. With Russians and their missiles pointed at us, he acted to show the government was not leaderless. It's probably true that the Russians had no plan to attack us. But how did we know? Al Haig was a former army general. In fact, he was the second in command of the army at one point. Yet, he demonstrated an insensitivity to politics and to the ways of the Washington press in an effort to demonstrate executive function. Al Haig had pointed out in his statement that if anything were to occur, and he didn't specify what that thing would be, he would be consulting the president. Now, how that would happen with the president under anesthesia sort of made it a useless statement. Haig was the Nixon loyalist who took over after Bob Hadelman resigned with the Watergate scandal during the Nixon presidency. A week before Nixon's resignation, he asked Haig to sound out vice president form over taking over the presidency. In an infamous meeting held a few days before Nixon would resign, Haig allowed the subject of a pardon to come up in the discussion between he and Ford. He never made any deal. No promises was made. No quid pro quo was made. But the subject came up. Haig advised Ford that our lawyers believe that a president could pardon an ex-president for any crimes. Ford was so uncomfortable with the discussion afterwards that he called Haig up to tell him, just to be clear, there's no deal here. Haig agreed with Ford. But having the meeting at all, would cause Ford some problems as president, and he'd have to go before Congress to explain. The pardon caused a huge drop in Vice President Ford's poll numbers and was the probable reason for his loss in a very narrow 1976 election. From Al Haig to Grover Cleveland, J. Mark English writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, Bruce, why Grover Cleveland? Would he have been a Republican if he were alive today? And Mark's, of course, referring to, on the Facebook site, I use Grover Cleveland as my icon. Well, first on that point, uh, I use it now mostly because uh, I celebrate some of the more obscure presidents. Before that, I used Chester Arthur as kind of the symbol of the podcast. And I'll give you a little hint. Next, it'll be Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, So obviously, I'm not using them in order. 
But uh, that's the only reason. I don't have any special attachment to Grover Cleveland other than we should look at all the presidents and not just a few. Grover Cleveland was elected in 1884 and then in 1892. He is the only person to be elected president twice non-consecutively. He's the only Democrat for a 52-year period between 1861 and 1913 to occupy the White House, the presidential nadir of the Democratic Party. It may be useful to examine why he was the only person to come back and be elected again after losing in a presidential election, and what are the circumstances, perhaps, for another person to do it. I think the common perception is that Cleveland was a conservative Democrat, a, if you will, Republican Democrat of the 19th century. This is especially true of his position on sound money. He backed a gold standard for our money and not the use of silver coinage, not an inflationary money supply. That was the position that most Eastern bankers would also agree with. And not surprisingly, business was not as afraid of Grover Cleveland as they might have been of some other Democrats. It doesn't mean they supported him, as we'll talk about a bit. The position he held on sound money, by the way, was the position held by just about every president of the United States. Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur. He was an Eastern Democrat, a gold bug, if you will, and certainly Grover was no liberal. Grover was no progressive. He did not believe in using the government at the federal level to help individuals. As governor of New York, he failed to support a bill that would mandate keeping fares on the railroad low for working men, which did not endear him to labor in New York State. But businessmen celebrated his courage, and the Democratic Party realized that in 1884 they ought to nominate this governor. As president, in his second term, he would fail to get any help for individuals from the federal government in the devastating depression of 1893 and 1894, and he would aggressively act to break a railroad strike in Chicago. So you are right to ask, is this guy even in the same party as President Obama? Was he in the same party as FDR? Well, there are two issues where Grover Cleveland would have trouble with Republicans, at least Republicans of his day. Republicans were the dominant business party, and businesses at that time supported high tariffs. They wanted to protect the manufacturing industries that were in America. About the only source of revenue for the federal government at this time, you did not have an income tax. The only source of revenue for the federal government at this time were these tariffs. So there were two things that tariffs brought. One was it protected American industry, supposedly, but it also created a usually a surplus in the American uh, federal government, which, amazingly, Congress often found new jobs to fill. But consumers paid for these in the form of high prices and less choice. So Cleveland's position on the tariff was he supported a low tariff. That's what farmers and many working men, that's what Westerners wanted. They wanted lower prices on goods, and they wanted competition to come from free trade, so they'd have more choices and lower prices both directly and indirectly. Directly, by simply reducing the tariff on the good, and indirectly, by introducing more competition. Free trade, then, was a Democrat rather than a Republican issue. And some cautioned Cleveland 
to stay away from the question. It was too divisive. He ought to just run the government well and then go for a second term saying, hey, Democrats did a good job here, reelect me. He wouldn't do that. He brought the tariff issue up in 1886 in a message and 1887 in a forceful message and pushed congressmen to support tariff reform. Came very close in 1887 during his first term. There was a vote uh, 154 to 149 in the House. During that battle, he received a letter from a Nebraska lawyer. We would all rather fall with you fighting for a principle than succeed with a party representing nothing but organized appetite. William James Bryan saluted him then, but in a few years he would become a great rival. The second issue where Grover Cleveland might not fit into all the issues of Republicans then and Republicans now is on imperialism. He thwarted efforts during his presidency at great political cost to annex Hawaii, and he scuttled any attempts to grab Cuba or help the rebels there. This was not well supported among businessmen and certainly among the press run by William Randolph Hearst. He attacked the jingoism of the press. As an ex-president, he spoke out against the press using the victims of the Maine. This was the ship that was blown up in Havana Harbor, uh, allegedly by the Spanish, using the names of those people to advertise for war. And he opposed the annexation of the Philippines. Such annexations, he said, are a perversion of our national mission. The mission of our nation is to build up and make a greater country out of what we have, rather than annexing islands. When Theodore Roosevelt was president, Grover Cleveland thought his actions on Panama were dishonorable for the American nation. But in his time, Cleveland was not so much remembered for those things. Grover the Honest was remembered for his courage in the face of political battles. In a time when the spoil system was very much alive and parties got into power to get all of those federal jobs, he refused. And when Congress tried to create new jobs, he vetoed many bills. Tammany Hall, the machine in New York City, had supported Grover Cleveland for president, even though they did not support him for governor of New York. They supported him for president because they figured once you get a Democrat in there, they'll get all of those federal jobs. Well, he disappointed them. Your character, Mark Twain wrote Grover Cleveland a year before Cleveland's death, is considered by many to be close to Washington's. Now, Twain might have been exaggerating, but that was how much people respected him, if not for what he didn't do during the economic crisis, for his honesty. You have to keep in mind that that's more important even than it is today. There are many more safeguards. You didn't have the kind of special prosecutors and and things like that in Washington. It was a feeding frenzy for jobs between the parties. So having an honest person meant more to average people that your money was being used better, that your federal government was being run better. His loss in 1888 reflects a party loss even more than the loss of the people. Tammany Hall felt he didn't give them enough jobs, and he lost New York by 30,000 votes out of 1.1 million cast. He lost Indiana by 2,000 out of half a million cast. He lost the Electoral College, but he won the popular vote in 1888 by 100,000 of 10 million cast. It was a small win in the popular vote, but a win. And he stood on a principle, the tariff reform, 
civil service that people remembered. He became kind of a martyr. And within the Democratic Party, soon after four years of Benjamin Harrison as president and the Republicans controlling Congress, Democrats got more angry at the people who had betrayed Cleveland than they got angry at him for whatever he did or didn't do. Even many silver money people who, in 1884, may have wanted someone else, in 1892 backed the comeback kid, well, he wasn't a kid, of Cleveland. Probably one of the most amusing stories about Cleveland's non-consecutive return is when they left the White House after that bitter 1888 defeat, Francis Cleveland told Jerry Smith, the servant at the White House, Now, Jerry, I want you to take good care of the furniture and ornaments in the house. We will be back in four years. Indeed, they were. Would Grover Cleveland have been a Republican today? I think the positions are more mixed and the man is more complex than what it seems on the surface. He probably would have been comfortable exactly where he was in 1884 in the more conservative-slash-centrist wing of the Democratic Party uh, rather than as a Republican. Certainly, he was no progressive. This was no Franklin Roosevelt. There was going to be no New Deal under Grover Cleveland. At the same time, there was also no income tax. So while the federal government didn't do much, it was also limited to what it could do because it wasn't taking money from those sources. Al Haig, Grover Cleveland, some forgotten folks that we'll talk a little bit about on this program. Quick talk on the filibuster because it's so much a part of uh, the healthcare debate, and it is fairly unique to American politics. The reason for the filibuster is not in the Constitution, except that in the Constitution, the House and the Senate determined their own rules. Those rules were reviewed by the President of the Senate in 1804. And that was a man named Aaron Burr. Yes, this is after his infamous duel. He decided to revise the rules of the Senate. And many of the revisions were good. He decided to drop a rule that a member by majority vote could move the previous question. That's a very common parliamentary phrase, meaning let's vote on the issue and stop talking about it. Okay? They got rid of that rule. No one really did anything about that until there was a vote to remove the censure of Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson had been censured by the Senate when Henry Clay was running that body for taking funds from the Treasury out of the Bank of the United States when he was having a quarrel with with that bank during the Bank War of 1832. That censure dogged him and his supporters. And in the Senate, Uh, there were enough votes to remove and expunge that from the record. Those who wanted to keep the censure motion decided to stage a filibuster. I'm not sure they called it then. The filibuster term is actually negative from filibustero, a freebooter, a pirate. You know, you're, you're, you're acting like a pirate during the discussion. You're taking the discussion away from the majority body is essentially what it means. And they did that traditional Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Jimmy Stewart thing where they talked all, all night and all day and did it for as long as they could. The opponents outlasted them, however, and that first filibuster effort was not successful. Andrew Jackson's censure was purged from the record. But this still became a problem because someone could hold up legislation if a member got cranky. And during World War I, when there was the Zimmerman memo, 
in which Germany was found to be trying to get Mexico to revolt against the United States to help Germany. This was outrageous, and there was a vote on the U.S. Senate to condemn this act. A couple of Midwestern senators felt that would provoke war with Germany, which they didn't want, so they filibustered. This angered people, and there's nothing like a kind of patriotic battle to get rules changed, and that's what's changed the rules. So at that point, it became a three-fourths vote. If you got three-fourths of the Senate, you could cloture, you could end discussion, and you could end a filibuster. This uh, later got revised to to the 60 votes where it is now. It's not a procedure that I'm endeared of. Uh, I think it, it always depends. If, you're the, if your party's not in power, you support the filibuster. I just think consistently... I've always felt it's just a bad idea. The Senate is an unrepresentative body, and the filibuster gives more power to it. One senator from California has as much power as one senator from Idaho. The senator from California represents a lot more people. But that's not doesn't show up in the Senate. Now, that's all right. I mean, that's the compromise that created American government. Fine. But I think the filibuster gives an additional advantage to this body, which is already unrepresentative. And it's not something that's in the Constitution. Over the long term of American history, I think it's been uh, very bad. It held up civil rights probably for anywhere from 20 to to 40 years. Uh, There were probably the votes to pass the Civil Rights Bill in the 1940s. There was a senator from New Mexico that wanted to pass it, and the filibuster was used to hold that up. So it doesn't have a great history. It's not part of the Constitution. It's been slowly evolving, and closure's getting easier and easier to do as we move on. I would say just finish the job. I want to thank you for listening. This is a short one. Reminder to go to the Facebook site. We're getting close to 800 uh, people on the Facebook site. Uh, the archives are available from myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. It's nine ninety nine. Thanks for listening.